We require as a team proper levels of pugnacity, testosterone, truculence, and truculence, and truculence, belligerence. Welcome back to the Truculent Podcast. Uh, I have a very special guest today, uh, Rachel Dory, now with HockeyGraphs.com. Uh, used to work for the Sudbury Wolves. Rachel, how you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? I am fantastic. I, uh, I've drank no water today and I've had three coffees, so I might be a little all over the map today, okay? So you're going to have to keep me on the rails. All right, sounds good. There's going to be hot takes flying everywhere. Oh, I always bring the hot takes. Yes. Uh, yes, you do. Okay. Um, so we had a question from Hudson Scott on Twitter. He wants to know uh, more. Of, he, I think he's basically asking for a detailed breakdown of why the Leafs play at such a high pace and, and this year. And by that, I mean just why they give up so many shots and also take so many shots Uh compared to, say, last year even? Uh, well, okay, the short answer is because they can. Um, the long answer is they have a lot more skill in the lineup this year. So you, last year they had one top line, and that was arguably not even a top line. This year you can make the argument that they have three top lines. I mean, they've got two 30-goal scorers, and then they've got another line. Um of Bozak, JVR, and Marner, who I think they each have almost 20 goals, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, when you have that kind of skill, you can play at a much higher pace. And today, with the way they're calling obstruction um, and how everything kind of feeds into the speed of the game, um, the Leafs have been able to make a couple key system changes, especially in their breakouts, that allow them to generate more shots. Um, and I think that that's why you're seeing them generate shots, but that's also why you're seeing them give up more because A, these players are young, so they're just learning. And B, when you're playing at that high pace, it's going to be a, a high event game. High event. That, that's a good way to put it. I like that. Um, I was going to ask you, do you think there's a lot, of, like a lot of the narratives around that, seem to be oh this is a young team so they're trash defensively but they're super good offensively do you think there's any merit to that having anything to do with age or do you think Babcock just looked at his forward group and looked at his defense core and was like yeah we're gonna have to uh focus on offense here this year I think that it's actually I think it is a balance um of both you're not gonna not let the big three, so Nylander, Marner, and Matthews, not be offensive. I mean, you drafted them for that. They're all top 10 draft picks. They're all scoring it. Um, they're going to have 60 points at least um, each. So I think that it's getting their feet under them. Um, to be fair, Matthews is not bad defensively. Nylander always has the puck, so it's hard to argue with his defensive play. And Marner plays with JVR and Bozak, who, even though they're veterans, I think everybody can pretty much agree um, that they're not the best defensively. I mean, you saw that when they played with Kessel. Um, that was one of the worst defensive lines in the league. So I think it would be unfair to saddle Marner with that. 
Um, there are definitely a couple of the veterans that are, I would say, not great defensively. Um, so to saddle the rookies with that narrative, I think is unfair because I think Zach Hyman and Connor Brown are actually really good defensively, especially because they're rookies. Um, I think Kadri is much improved defensively. I remember when Ron Wilson said the guy wouldn't play in the league um, if he couldn't figure out his defensive game, and he's looked really good. And then you look at the back end, it's hard to argue against what Jake Gardner is doing. Um, and then, obviously, the pairing of Hunwick and Polak has been good of late, but for the first 50 games of the season, they were a bit of a mess in their own end, and they're veterans, right? So it's unfair to, to saddle the young guys with that narrative. Yeah, I think so, too. I never thought of... I, I, I guess I kind of forget that Marner has basically just come in and taken... Um, Kessel's old job on that line um that that line is kind of like the epitome of of the team right like they're all three of them are really good offensively I don't think Bozak gets enough credit um for how good he actually is offensively for a guy who's not particularly skilled at anything like he doesn't have great hands he doesn't have a great shot I think he's just smart and he knows where to be. Um, but anyway, him and JVR both, I think they get too much uh, flack because I I, th- I think ultimately their their offensive strengths heavily outweigh their defensive deficiencies. Oh, you're 100% right. 100%. So, but yeah, <laughs> I love watching that line because you, know, uh, you know something's going to happen, whether it's against the Leafs or... or for the Leafs, but I think it's exciting. Yeah, I think, especially now, I mean, Kessel was less of a puck carrier and more of the shooter, right? He's a yeah. sniper. Um, whereas to Marner is more of that hold on to the puck. I mean, how many times have we seen him circle the offensive zone two times or one and a half times till he finds the exact play, and, and then he makes that play. So with him on the line now, you're possessing the puck a lot more as opposed to just having a trigger man. And I think that bodes well for Bozak because that means that he doesn't have to be the distributor on the line. It takes a bit of the the pressure off of him. And it takes some pressure off of JVR as well because he's now, he can just go to the net with a stick on the ice or create space for Marner. Um, and Marner's going to thrive off of that. And I think Bozak will thrive off of that too because he is getting better at getting the puck to his teammates uh, off of the draw. And whenever you can start with the puck, especially if Mitch Marner's on your line, you're going to be in a good spot. So I think that that line, as they continue to develop chemistry, will get a whole lot better. Yeah, and I think um, like they're still uh, up just above water, just about break even usually um, on the shot share too. And, and they have the skill to – to drive a bit of a higher shooting percentage uh, long term than the team there, or than the whatever the lines they're playing against. So, um, yeah, for sure. But uh, it's all four lines have such a uh, similar, but they all have their own clear identity. Like that line's all offense. Um, the Matthews line is interesting with with Nylander and Matthews, and then 
Hyman just in there, just grinding it out. And there's a lot of, I don't, a lot of people have been complaining for a while now about, about Hyman being chained to Matthews. And I, I get that because like, clearly he's not really skilled enough to distribute the puck for Matthews. But I also get Babcock's uh, idea of, of Hyman because Hyman, like his shot share is, is pretty good. Like, like he's pretty good at getting the play uh, into the offensive zone and he's pretty good defensively. Um, and he, he goes in the corner, like last game he set up Matthews for that goal, which was, I think the first time in a while. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I like, I'd rather have like, say a Levo or even now Kapanen on that line or something, but I don't think it's, especially when Nylander's playing on that line, I don't think it's as big of a deal as people seem to make it out to be. Like in terms of Hyman holding back Matthews, because um, I, I would mean, say that Hyman is good for Matthews in the respect of guys like Matthews and Nylander because they're those skilled guys. They love to have the puck, right? Yeah. And Hyman is one of those guys that you know if the puck's in the corner, he's going to be there. He's going to get in there. He's going to get the puck, and he's pretty good at that puck retrieval. Um, which is why I think he continues to play on that line, even though he's not necessarily producing. Um, and I I kind of get that line of thinking. I'm okay with it for now, but I'm with you. Um, I would like to see Josh Levo perhaps get a chance up there. Um, I would like to see Kapanen maybe in one or two years get a chance up there. I think he needs to come up and get his feet wet before we have an all-rookie line. Um, Hyman really anchors that line in the defensive zone. Like, he's really defensively aware. His stick is always in the in the right lane. And, yes, Matthews is aware defensively, and, and so is Nylander. But Hyman is really that dependable guy right now, just because he's played pro hockey for a little bit longer. Um, and so I would say next year he probably won't be glued to Matthews as much because he is on the penalty kill and he's probably not going to play on the power play with guys like Kapanen and Leipzig coming up. Um, but I would like to see Josh Levo get a shot up there. I mean, the guy can't even get in the lineup right now. Um, which is, is unfortunate because I think he's definitely one of the Leafs top 12 forwards. Um, sounds like he's actually hurt now though. Yeah. Him and Soshnikov. Yeah. And as long as Ben Smith doesn't make it back in the lineup before Josh Levo does, I'll be silent. Yeah, same, <laughs> needless to say. Um, what, are, what are you talking about? I thought Ben Smith was your favorite. Yeah, are, are you, I knew you were going to try to bait me into this Ben Smith talk. I'm not doing it. <laughs> um, looking at the defense core, because another big narrative being discussed uh, when it comes to the Leafs, almost all season is is they need that uh, top flight right handed defenseman. Um, but when kind of when you look at their decor, if you fix that bottom pairing, and actually like like you said, Hunwick and Polak have been better of late. I've noticed they've both been kind of jumping up into the play and trying to carry the puck into the zone themselves, trying to force things, and they've been much more effective that way. I don't know if. I, I don't. I really don't know what happened there, but it's noticeable. 
and it shows too in the in the numbers. Yeah. But um like going forward like uh the top 4 so Riley Gardner they're both arguably top pairing but like you know not the driver of a top pairing defense. right and then Carrick and Zaitsev are both pretty good uh second pairing defensemen I would say and mm-hmm. then, and so next year if if you fix up that bottom pairing I like they're fine I think I mean obviously it would be great if they could find a way to get uh improve on the right side um but I I think they're decent I think a lot of it has to do with with their play style this year like it's it's kind of just just run and gun but they're so talented that they're they're still owning the shot share more often than not so I, I don't know what you yeah. think um I tend to agree with you in saying that the Leafs need a top two right-handed defenseman well I've got news for every fan of every NHL team every team needs a top flight right-handed defenseman exactly. they don't grow on trees so they're a hard to find and b when you find them they're going to be expensive whether you have to trade for them or you have to sign them they're not cheap so i think it is important to look at either drafting one um or going with what you have now so like you said riley is like he's a good defenseman so is jake gardner i not going to say that either one of them are going to win the Norris, but both of them are, like, they handle themselves in their own end. They drive the puck. Gardner's got a great shot. I would like to see Gardner play on the penalty kill because I think he might be able to um, prevent some zone entries or at least make them more difficult. And I would like to see Riley get a shot on the power play. Um, just cause I think he is more offensive minded and he's being told to be more defensive. And I think if you just let his skill take over, it will take over. Um, Zaitsev is a rookie. So, I mean, rookies have an adjustment period. Yes. He's older. He's 25, I think, but there's a difference between playing in Russia and playing in the NHL. Like it's, it's, there's a big difference. So I think next year you'll start to see him take those next steps. Um, and that'll be good for the team. I love the way Connor Carrick plays. Um, he's not the biggest, but by all accounts, he's pretty difficult to play against. And he's pretty good with his shot share, so I don't have a whole lot of problems there. Next year, I would like to see them give a shot to uh, Renat Valiev, uh, Travis Dermott, maybe even a Justin Hall, um, who are all with the Marlies, in a bottom pairing or like a sparingly kind of like bring them up, send them down. They're both going to be able to do that to get their feet wet. Um, but I don't necessarily think that going out and signing a free agent is a good idea. Um, if you want to go out and get a defenseman, you're probably going to have to give up one of the wingers. I would say probably a right winger. I'm not a proponent of giving up JDR just because I think the Leafs are weaker on the left-hand side when it comes to the wing. So you're looking at giving up somebody like Kapanen or um, who else can play the right wing? Um, Because you're not giving up Nylander 
and you're not going to give up Marner. And I don't even want to hear it as an option because it's not an option. Thank you. So you're going to have to look at trading some of your prospects and maybe a first or second round pick. Because um, I don't think JVR should be an option either. Yeah, I, th- I think the problem with JVR and why it makes so much sense um, to move him is because his contract ends next year and he's going to be a UFA and he's going to be whatever, 28, 29. And mm-hmm. he puts up a lot of points and he's going he's gonna to demand a lot of money. So, I, I mean, I, I'm of the opinion they should be contending next year. So I'd probably hold on to him anyway. Exactly. Unless, I mean, unless you can get like a Josh Manson or something for him. But I, yeah. So I, I like I said, I, I think they should be contending next year. So unless you can shore up that, uh, that top pair, right, defenseman with, mm-hmm. but I don't see, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can finagle it by adding a couple things, but uh, like teams aren't going to pay that heavy price for a left winger with one more year on his contract. I don't think. I would say that, your best because the the whole Vegas thing throws a wrench into things. Um, if you look at Anaheim, they have to protect Kevin Bieksa. Yeah, that's so. They're either going to have to trade or they're going to have to trade with Vegas to ensure that they don't take any of those defensemen. Which, if I'm Vegas, I'm not doing that because I want one of those defensemen. Yeah. Right. The other team I might look at is Nashville for their D. Right. Well, they're top. They've got, four. I think, Ekholm, Ellis, Subban, and Yossi. So one of them has to be exposed this to the draft, right? I believe so, but I you could protect four and four. Yeah, and then you have to uh, expose two more forwards then. Exactly. Uh, so if I'm Nashville, I find a way to either move one of those guys, or if there's a way they can protect them, then. You protect them, but I think if the Leafs are going to make a move for a big D-man, um, which I'm not against, but I am against giving up William Nylander for that, um, it's got to be because that team has to move the asset due to expansion kind of thing. So I think we're going into an interesting period where some teams like the Leafs will be able to capitalize on the availability of some young D-men. Yeah, uh, basically identify teams dealing from a position of weakness like like Anaheim or Nashville. Exactly. And, and try to expose them. Um, uh, going back to what you said a little bit earlier uh, about kind of letting Morgan Riley go, like kind of letting, taking the chains off of him and just letting him do his thing because I, I think, like I've kind of been pushing for this for two years now. That just <laughs> let Gardner take the tough minutes and then put uh, Riley on second pair to duties. I mean, or, or split up their the tough minutes, whatever. I, I don't care. But then just let Riley do his thing, which I think would be easier if you gave him second pairing minutes and whatever, like Connor Carrick to play with a good uh, defensive um, defenseman. And because we're at the point like He's what, twenty three now? Like he turned twenty three a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So you know he could still improve significantly. It's pro- it's not that probable though. Like I think what we're seeing right now 
is most likely pretty close to what Morgan Riley's going to be at his peak. So instead of, I don't know, because it's been two years of trying to like beat him into this good defensive mold, and it's not really working. I, th- I think he's at his best when he can push play with his offense because he's really good at that. Um, so yeah, I, I'd like to see Gardner given those tough minutes and 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 just let Riley go and, and stop trying to force him to be something he isn't. Kind of like a Keith Yandel type. Yeah, I I, I guess I half agree with you. Um, I wouldn't be giving Gardner all of the tough minutes per se. I'd, I'd split them. So as long as you have one of those guys out on the ice in your matchup, like you're going to be okay because both of them, like there's not a significant difference in like maybe the shot share shows a little bit, but in terms of how they defend Riley gives up shots, but they're all from the outside. Like he doesn't give up the slot shots and he doesn't have those ridiculous turnovers that some of the other defensemen have where they just, here's a breakaway, please go and score that kind of thing. So I think, yes, I would like to see the reins let off of Morgan a little bit, let him skate with the puck. I mean, in today's game, we're always looking for that really mobile, puck-moving offensive defenseman, and that's what he is. Now, granted, he's recovering from a high ankle sprain, and he's going to need the summer to fully recover from that. But if you let him be that, I think you will see him be more successful And he's going to have the puck more, which means the other team is not going to have the puck as much, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see that. I think um, instead of trying to shove a square peg into a round hole, they should just let the square peg be the square peg and ask him to go into a square hole. And then you leave some of the tougher defensive minutes and you split them between Riley and Gardner, and then if you pair those guys with Zaitsev and Carrick, both of those guys are pretty good defensively as well, so you're you're in good shape. Um, so unless they acquire that number one defenseman, I'm definitely agreeing with you in that Gardner should see more of the tougher minutes. There's no need for Riley to be out there for 25 minutes a night. Great analogy there, Rachel. Just bringing it. That's what the people are here for. That's the content we're looking for. Um, but yeah, it also, uh, I, I should have prefaced it by saying I do think Riley has improved this year. Um, and a lot of that has to do with getting a, a decent right-handed uh, partner. But uh, yeah, so I, I think he has improved this year. And I think I think his shot share numbers are, are uh, significantly better. I mean, obviously, last year he's playing tough minutes with not only a left-handed defenseman, but left-handed Matt Hunwick. And I mean, obviously that's not gonna, that's, that's uh, a recipe for disaster right there. And uh, so, so I do find me a defenseman that can be over 55% shot share with any defenseman who's like 32 or 33. And other than Brent Burns, I really can't think of one. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Brent Burns could play with, Brent Burns could quite literally play shorthanded and he would be fine. Yeah, well, I mean, the guy shoots for... 
I think he's still leading the league in shots. He's a goddamn defenseman. Yeah, I think in Dom Lustician's uh, game score, he's 1.19, and then Paul Martin, his defense partner, is like 0. .3 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they're the highest-rated D pair in the league because Burns is just ridiculous. I He scored the other day. It was his first goal in like 17 games or something like that. I didn't know that was happening. Did you? I was aware that there was a bit of a drought, but I was also aware that um, San Jose wasn't getting as many power plays as they generally would in a month span. And that's a big, uh, huge weapon for them and has been for the last couple of years. Well, yeah, because you uh, you've got Joe Thornton distributing the puck. Pavelski and then, in the slot. I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly in a hurry to go stand in front of Brent Burns' one-timer. No, especially because it's haywire and you never know where it's going. Exactly. <laughs> just like him as a human. The yeah, just beard and snakes and other reptiles. I love him. My mom always makes fun of him and I get offended every time. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we also got a request to talk about Austin Matthews enough, be- or Austin Matthews, because he said, uh, I don't know who it was that said it, um, but he said he hasn't heard enough about Austin Matthews. I'm like, I don't know who this guy follows, but uh, he's following the wrong people. Or nobody at all. Yeah. Do you follow two people? Yeah. Like, I, I hear about <laughs> Austin Matthews enough. Well, maybe not enough. Not It's never enough. Just like my main man, William Nylander. I, ca- I can't get enough Matthews and Nylander and Marner content. Do you like William Nylander? I'm just clarifying. Uh, I have been known to hype up William Nylander a little bit here and there. I do like him, and he is handsome as hell. Yes, he's a very good-looking Swede. Did you like that picture that I I sent you today from that Boston game? (laughs) That was pre-hat trick. I saw that. Just, I I was watching the game. I, <laughs> I just randomly found it today on my laptop, and I forgot I had it. I was just watching the game, and I was like, oh, shit, look at that. Paused it, screenshot. He was just looking perfect. Yeah, I would say that guy has to be being sarcastic, or he, like you said, is not following the right people. Because, I mean, Austin Matthews is... I'm not a proponent of bold, predictive statements, but I don't think I'm far off when I say by the end of his career, if he spends his entire career in Toronto, he just might be the greatest Maple Leaf of all time. Yes, Rachel. Bring in the hot takes. Yeah. I love it. He is... I mean, I've watched a lot of hockey and a lot of game tape um of other players and in his draft year he was being compared to Anze Kopitar and Jonathan Taves and I think that those are unfair comparisons and I think they're unfair because they don't do him justice he has more goals this year than either of them have ever got in a season so Anze has two cups okay Taves has three okay the comparison Kane to Marner is closer than Matthews to Taves. I mean, Matthews has 35 goals now as a rookie. He gets to the dirty areas. He drives his line. 
he's already I think he's over fifty percent in the faceoff circle. At least last time I checked, which we'll get to faceoffs later because that's a whole other. I thought he was kind of bad at them. Not that I care, but I I thought I don't know. There was one point where he was. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but he, you look at that line, and when Connor Brown was on that line, he drove that line. He drives the bus for that team. Yes, Freddie Anderson has to make thirty plus saves a night, but Austin Matthews is driving the bus. Does he with still the Toronto Maple Leafs logo on it? And there is no debating that. And I think this team will go where he takes them. Um, he just, he does things at such a high level. I haven't seen a hockey player strip guys of pucks like he does since my favorite player played and that was Pavel Datsuk. Like he is just incredible when he, uh, either protects the puck or, um, is trying to retrieve the puck. It's, it's, you marvel at his skill. It's funny you bring that up. Like every time I watch a Leaf game uh, with with my buddy Zach, every time he steals a puck, which is at least once a game, I look at him like he's Datsuk at at stripping guys of the puck. So it's funny that you bring up that comparison. Great minds. Yeah, he is. Um, he's not as silky as Datsuk is. I don't think we'll see somebody that with that set of hands for a very long time. Um, but in terms of Ability to protect the puck, ability to strip the puck, um, defensive awareness. He reminds me a lot of of Pavel Datsuk in that respect, and that's I don't think I've ever compared anybody to Pavel Datsuk before. Yeah, I, but I think I think Matthews is more of a pure goal scorer than than people give him credit for. I mean, I. I People tend to say pure goal score, and that means they're only offensive or whatever, but obviously Matthews is, is a pretty good 200-foot player already. But I just mean in the sense that I think he still has at least one shot in every single game in his career. He does. And he's, I think, I checked last night, he was like sixth in the NHL in shots per hour. So, like, this goal scoring is not a flash in the pan. Like, it's not TJ Oshie shooting 27%. He's... It's a sustainable shooting percentage, and it, like all signs point to him scoring at this pace for the foreseeable future. And it's funny that you say you bring up pure goal scorer, um, because I think the only reason he's not seen as a pure goal scorer is because of the man drafted right behind him at number two, who is a pure goal scorer when you say pure goal scorer for the last decade in the nhl the first person you think of is alex ovechkin right Mm -hmm. and now you see patrick line and he scores at a clip that's relatively similar to matthews um but then when you look at matthews he does so many other things well that it's almost like his goal scoring is forgot about right Mm -hmm. and i think you're right from that perspective because he. This is the quietest thirty-five goal season until recently. I've seen when, in a long time because I remember when Kessel was getting thirty-five goals. That was all anybody could talk about. Well, they had nothing else to talk about. What are we going to talk about, Tyler Bozak? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but um, I think that 
him playing with Nylander, like his ability to pass the puck, like we talked about earlier, his puck skill. Um, there's just so much there with Matthews that I think it's hard for Leaf fans to almost comprehend because the last time we saw somebody even remotely close to being this complete a hockey player, it was Matt Sundin. I, I agree. Um, and it's funny. Um, you bring up line A and he's a totally different goal scorer. Uh, I think you bring up Ovechkin and that that's kind of what a lot of people point to immediately. But I think line A is closer to Stamkos and Kovalchuk in the sense that they're not as much volume shooters as they are efficiency shooters. Like they don't shoot at that high of a clip but they shoot at a high percentage. Now, this is line A's rookie season, so we don't know if it's going to sustain. It's, it, we don't know if it's sustainable or not, but um, sure, it looks like it, the way he shoots the puck. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Just, I, th- I would say so. I actually have a friend um, that I went to school with, and he is doing some video work with the Winnipeg Jets right now. Him and I were chatting. Um and he was talking about how Line a sets up in a similar place to Ovechkin. And I said to him, I said, I want you to watch Line A's release. And then I sent him a, a video of Ilya Kovalchuk's release, and it kind of broke down how he released the puck. And I said, Ovechkin shoots the puck very differently. And I think Line a is he shoots the puck more like Kovalchuk. If you watch the whip on his stick and where the puck is in his stance and where he releases it, um, where his shoulders are, that kind of thing. I, it's sim- more similar to Kovalchuk than it is to Ovechkin. Um, and Stamkos is kind of in the middle of the two of them. But I would agree with the fact that Line is is less of a volume shooter and more of a... Um, he picks his spots, right? He can yeah. shoot off the rush. On the power play, he's deadly already. Um, so I think you're going to see that he is more Kovalchuk than he is Ovechkin for sure. It's funny that, uh, of course you break down how he shoots it. And I break down how often he shoots it. It's textbook. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's a good uh, combo. Yeah. It's, it's our, it's our, our textbook petty arguments that we have every once in a while over. Oh. And we're all talking, we're always talking about the same thing except I'm talking about the output and you're talking about the input and, and, and then we just like bitch about it at each other. And then, and then we realize we're both saying the same thing. <laughs> we're just talking about the opposite side of the equation. Exactly. Um, so on my last podcast with uh, Ian from, from Leafs Geeks there, uh, I brought up uh, some potential rule changes and, mm-hmm. uh, and I wanted to discuss them with you. Um, I, I think I got a couple of them from uh, uh, Greg Sinclair's podcast with Manny. He was asking Mike Johnson about a couple of these. I don't remember exactly which ones were his. But uh, one big one that, that I've seen brought up more and more often this year is just eliminating offsides. Um, I, what do you think that would do to the game? Do you think it would open it up? Do you think it would um, increase scoring? Or, or would it do the opposite, kind of like, like making the ice bigger in the Olympics where everybody just has too much room. And so the puck isn't focused, uh, around the net as much. Okay. So there's two 
things you can look at here. First thing I look at is, number one, and I might be in the minority with this, I think the game is too fast. Too many people are getting hurt. Um, I just I think the game moves too fast now. Too, too many people are too big, too strong, too fast. Um, so I, I think the game needs to be slowed down a little bit. Um, I've toyed with the idea of suggesting maybe putting the two-line pass back in. Um, just because you see the guys getting cutting across the blue line to accept that pass and wham, and then it's concussion central, right? So you gotta look at some ways to get rid of that. Um, I am not a proponent of eliminating offsides. What I am a proponent of is changing what an offside is. Okay, elaborate. So you have to enter over the blue line, like the opposing blue line. Right. Mm-hmm. Once you are over that blue line, the offensive zone becomes red line in. Do you like, understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Adelo brought that up. It he called it uh, permeated offsides, I believe. So basically, eliminate the blue lines, and then just so you're always one team is always in the offensive zone. Exactly, except I would like to see, you still have that neutral zone for zone entries, but then once you've gained the zone, the puck has to come over the red line for it to be, like over center ice for it to be considered out. Okay, so you still have to cross the blue line to gain uh, the offensive zone, but then it has to cross the red line for it to be out. Yeah, so you have half the ice to play with. Um, That creates more space for the players. Do I think it'll work? I'm not 100% sure. I haven't done enough research on it yet. Um, I think that teams are slowly finding ways to basically close down almost every offensive play that you can think of just with coaching and the focus on defensive play and and sticks in lanes and um, less about one-on-one and more about the actual defensive system. So I think a wrinkle like that might uh, might change things, um, per se, as far as offsides go. And oh my god, get ri- I would like to see video review change. So if you're going to review a play for offside, right? Because I think that's why everybody wants the offside rule change is because of those reviews that take eight minutes. Am I right? <laughs> yes, on the iPad Mini. Yeah. So what they should do is if you want to review a play for offside on a goal, the goal has to be scored on the rush that the offside took place. And what I'm saying is, is let's say a team gains the zone. There's 30 seconds of gameplay. The other team has touched the puck, had a chance to clear it, and didn't. And then you score. Why the heck should you be penalized for that? Right, If the other team had the opportunity to A, clear the puck, or the rush in which the offside happened is um, is over, the goal clearly would not have stemmed from that. And once the other team gets control of the puck, I say you lose your chance to, to challenge. Because at that point, you had control of the puck and you could have cleared. And I think that would eliminate a lot of the offside reviews. Okay. I, I could get behind that. 
Another idea I saw, I think it was Dello again. I don't know why I keep bringing up Dello, Dello's ideas. He's an, he's an interesting dude. I guess that's why. So he's got some different takes. Um, but he, I think it was him that said they should just, uh, if you want to, if the officials want to review an offside play, they have two minutes to do so. And whatever their decision is after two minutes, that that's what they have to go with. Cause if, if you haven't made up your mind after two minutes, then you're never going to be, you're never going to have conclusive results. So, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that I would say let's start with did the offside directly um like was the goal stemming directly from the offside yeah was it if the answer is no then you can't review it if your team touched the puck you had control of the puck you lose your chance to challenge end of story all right right yeah that's kind of how I see it I I think that eliminates a lot of it because I remember Somebody challenged, I want to say it was one of the Browns goals, and they had to rewind the clock 46 seconds because it was offside. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, that's dumb. Right? Yeah. So, like, you got to find a happy medium there. For sure. Um, Another goal or another uh, rule change, I think this was Manny that that came up with this one. A lot of his ideas were crazy, but funny. This one I actually kind of liked. Uh, just goalies get a delay of game penalty if they freeze the puck. So if if there's too much pressure on you and you think you're going to give up a goal, fine, go ahead and freeze the puck, but now you have to kill a penalty. Um, is this stemming from I want more offense? Yes. That's what, what a really simple rule change is to create more offense? Yeah, what's that? You're not allowed to ice the puck on the power on the penalty kill. That was my next one. Yep, can't do it. I think that would um, a it would change the way teams penalty kill. B it would force teams to actually strategize against a zone exit or how to zone exit. Um, and then you have these tired penalty killers, and they'd have to stay on. That's how you create more offense. The freezing the puck thing, I have a problem with. Um, I'm a very big protect the goalies person. I think if goalies, um, if the puck is near the goalie and they can't freeze it, I think there's a huge potential for injury because players are going to crash the net. I mean, look what happened to Eddie Lack, right? And that was on just a, a break-in, right? If someone's coming full speed to the net, well, especially especially when it's knows, Andreas Abenzi, can't freeze the puck. Yeah, you could have some big problems there, right? To be fair, the Eddie Lack injury was Andreas Athanasiu having the whole ice to get uh, a run at it because it was three on three, and he's arguably one of the fastest skaters in the world. Yeah. That's probably not like the best example, but what I'm saying is I don't want someone coming full steam ahead because they yeah. know the goalie can't freeze the puck. That is asking for an injury. All right, gotcha. Um, but, but yeah, the no icing on the PK thing, it was what I was going to bring up next. And, and yeah, I don't see any issues with that. And I don't, I honestly, like explain to me why that's a thing in the first place. Like who sat down and decided, okay, uh, 
you you took a penalty, so now you get to ice the puck to make it easier for yourself. Like, no, you took the penalty, you should be at a disadvantage. Why do you get a, a half your advantage back? Yeah, or what you do is you reverse the Wayne Gretzky rule, which is if you take a penalty, it's two minutes, and you have to serve the two minutes, kind of like a five-minute major yeah. where you have to serve the whole five minutes. Yeah. You have to serve the whole two minutes, no matter how many times they score. I, th- I think me and Ian talked about that one, too. Just just do both of those, how about? Yeah, I mean, that would increase offense. Yeah. The whole reason they got rid of it was because Wayne Gretzky was scoring like a machine. <laughs> yeah, which is a good thing, by the way, because now we got the opposite problem. Exactly. Okay, so... Um... Well, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about the article you wrote for Hockey Graphs about redefining the definition of a, a one faceoff? Sure, we can uh, we can cover that. But okay, well, as as you all know, if you listen to NHL broadcasts, the only thing that matters in a hockey game are faceoffs. Literally, only faceoffs. It's the only way to score goals and win. And it matters whether you win them on at home or on the road. Yeah, yeah. Don't forget about that. And it also matters what your face-off percentage is every month. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely no variance involved there. Um, no. Definitely very important. Um, Absolutely. But what bothers me is, and I said this in the article, I can't count watching Leaf games specifically how many times on a broadcast, and I will give Gord Miller and Ray Ferraro the benefit of the doubt because they do not do it. Um, how many times there a goal has been scored, and when they do the analysis, they talk about the faceoff. Okay, there was 30 seconds of gameplay after the faceoff. There was 40 passes made and two turnovers and a zone exit. But let's please talk about winning the face-off. Like, that has nothing to do with the goal. Yeah, I, I think it's what? Every um, 101 face-offs in the offensive zone leads to, like, one and a half goals. Yeah, and the best example I can think of is in the OHL Cup, um, one of the, the center um, put his winger kind of halfway at a 45 degree angle, basically won the draw directly to him. The kid shot the puck in the net one and a half seconds after the puck was dropped. That has to do with a one face off. Yes. But, but Austin Matthews winning a face off in his defensive zone and then passing the puck to Gardner, who then breaks it out to Nylander, who then carries the puck in the offensive zone, who then passes it to Matthews and they fiddle around for 30 seconds and then scores is has nothing to do with the faceoff that Matthews won in his defensive zone. Mm-hmm. It's right. So, uh, what is what is your what is your idea behind uh, changing the definition of a one faceoff? So, the purpose in my mind, and in a lot of coaches' minds, the purpose of winning a draw is to gain possession of the puck. Right. Yes. So. We, I measure face-offs um, by one of four categories. You win the draw and you win possession. You lose the draw and you lose possession, which are the two 
most likely outcomes. Yes. Right? But then you can win the draw and lose possession, or you can lose the draw and win possession. And that has to do more with the wingers than anything. Right? Right. So the way I think face-offs should be, from an advanced standpoint, that's how I should be looked they should be looked at for opportunities instead of just win-loss. However, for not confusing the average fan's sake, whichever team gets possession of the puck off the face-off technically wins the face-off because they have succeeded in the purpose of taking a draw, which is to gain possession of the puck. And I'm not saying you have possession and then you get stripped and then the other team has the puck. Then the other team wins the draw. My definition of winning a draw is the puck is dropped and whichever team has control of the puck with the ability to either to, to skate or to make a play, basically, so you have to have control, should win the draw. Because that is the purpose of a face-off. So do you, I, th- I think you mentioned in, there, in, in your article that they should break down face-offs where like say the defense or the centermen tie each other up and the winger jumps in and and gains possession of the puck whether he passes it back to the defenseman or whatever that they right. should get like up it should be it should be marked that way right because i i think you're right like there will be a lot of wingers that you'll find that are especially good at helping their centermen win draws yeah, and we see this uh, in Sudbury, actually. We notice this. We have uh, a set of wingers who's really good at maintaining possession and even winning possession when the centerman, let's say the puck isn't knocked back to us. We're, we have a set of wingers that's very good at gaining possession back. So I think there needs to be a winger-win standpoint, but if you want to just black and white, whoever gets possession of the puck has won the face-off because that's what winning a face-off should be, right? If I knock the puck forward and I maintain possession of the puck, let's say I'm the centerman and I knock the puck through this, the opposing centerman skates and I pick up the puck, who should get credit for that draw? Yeah, obviously, whichever team ends up with actually gaining possession. Not, exactly. Not and who won it. So this in- year, um, I think it was Anisimov, knocked the puck forward for uh, Panarin, who skated in and took the puck. But the Nashville center got credit for the face-off win because the puck went towards his team. Okay, but Panarin took the puck. That's that's what I was going to say. It, it, they're, they're, the face-off wins are graded by whichever direction the puck goes, right? Instead of who gains possession. It's like if, if it went... Uh, behind you, then you apparently won the face-off because it's closer to your teammates, I guess. Right. Not, but it doesn't ultimately matter if if the other team scoops up the puck. Exactly. So I think that that's how face-offs need to be discussed is more about who, what team gets possession of the puck versus what direction the puck went in. Um. Because let's say, for example, you knock the puck forward and the winner, the winger skates in and shoots the puck and scores. Well, you won the draw, then how do you explain the fact that you got scored on less than three seconds later? Right? Yeah. Because you didn't really win the draw, did you? No. 
So I think that that's how it needs to be discussed. And unless goals are scored like that, or they're scored where you could tell, let's say the puck, your team maintains possession of the puck and you make three quick passes around and you could tell that it stemmed because you won the faceoff because the possession was so clear cut, then okay, we can draw it back to the fact that you won the faceoff. The second there's a zone exit or um, more than 10 or 15 seconds of gameplay, get lost with your faceoff narrative. I can get behind that. Right? Um, so I, what was it last week that I, that I was, I texted you asking what you thought of potentially using four forwards at five on five, maybe like say when you're trailing in the third period, if you're a team like the Rangers say, who have a ton of good forwards and like two good defensemen. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that was last week, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, I listened to the, the PDO cast yesterday and it was Chris Johnson on there okay. with, with Dimitri and they start talking about that. I'm like, yo, great minds think alike. Uh, I've been hacked. I'm pretty sure they're in my microwave. They're in my... Yeah. So, um, with the four forward thing, it allows you to have a different setup in the offensive zone that a defenseman would not necessarily, um, fit well into so if you want to use the rangers it's a great example um would you rather have pavel buzhnevich as your let's say number four or nick holden (laughs) yeah uh i i think i think i mean i've been wrong before and uh you know my ideas are sometimes outside the box but i think i'd rather have pavel out there than nick holden yeah i mean he gets sat for Tanner Glass sometimes, and that's a whole different thing. Yeah, let's not let's not do this. But what I'm saying is, you could have Bujnevich, Zuccarello, Rick Nash, and Michael Grabner scoring a ton of goals. Michael this year. Grabner out there, right? Mm-hmm. And then let's say you have McDonough on the point, right? Yeah. If you're down, um, Derek Stepan too. Yeah, you could have Derek Stepan out there. It allows you to set up almost like a power play, almost like a 1-3-1, right? And I'm going to use the Leafs for an example because I've seen them set up on their power play, and and I think it could work at even strength. Um, After penalty kills, when Babcock throws the line of uh, Matthews, Kadri, Nylander out there, um, you could have four forwards out there. Now, it obviously does not have to be Mitch Marner. You could put Leo Komarov or Connor Brown or Zach Hyman out there with those three. And then let's say you have Jay Gardner or Morgan Riley on the point. Well, you've got the defensive responsibility in Kadri and either Komarov or Hyman or Brown, right? Yep. And then you've got the offensive side of things with those four forwards they can set up in a 1-3-1, which defensemen are less likely to do because of the whole don't pinch unless you're sure. So they set up in more of the 3-2 when there's two defensemen. But if you set up in a 1-3-1, it's almost like a power play setup. And it really, for the first little bit, I think, would throw a wrench into how teams defend 
because, yes, if you give the puck up, obviously you only have one demon on the ice, but you're trying to score a goal anyways because you're not going to play four forwards if you're not trying to score. Yeah. Right? It would be silly if you were up two goals or one goal in the third period to be playing with four forwards. Right? Like, yes. You just wouldn't do that. But if you're trying to generate offense, why wouldn't you have some of your best offensive players on the ice and give them the opportunity to have a different setup to generate different looks? Um, If you set it up properly, you can have Nylander on his one-timer side. You can have Matthews on his one-timer side. You can have Jake Gardner one-timing from the top, and he's got a cannon. And then put Kadri in the slot. And you put Kadri in the slot, and then you put Komarov or Brown, whoever is out there, in front of the net. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can have that setup. And I'd be curious to see if it works. Because even if Matthews and Nylander weren't on their one-timer sides, because I know Nylander likes on the right side. He likes to set up there. Yeah. Um, if you can get those shots in, you're looking at some pretty key opportunities from what I like to call the house, which is the high danger scoring area, right? Yes. Um, you're looking at some opportunities you could seriously generate there and um, teams are going to have to adjust to that because it's not, it's no longer going to be the regular defensive system that defends against the 3-2 because it's a completely different setup. Yeah. You can't have two wingers high because our two wingers going to defend Jay Gardner. So there would have to be more rotations that go into it and that's how you confuse players, right? Yes. Often when mistakes happen in the defensive zone, it's because of rotations, right? And they, Yeah, and they wouldn't, especially, like you said, early on, um, when they first see that, they'd be so <laughs> confused in their rotations. as to... Exactly, and when you lose a rotation and you've got a guy like Bujnevich or Matthews or Nylander or Patrick Kane, good luck. Yeah. That, that was my thought too. So I'm glad that you liked that one. Kind of, kind of going off that a little bit. Uh, in three on three OT, uh, other than Carolina, who sometimes play two or three defensemen just because they're defensemen, they have a lot more good defensemen than forwards. Um, every coach just seems to automatically put two forwards, one defenseman on the ice every time. Um, why? Um, I think the start of the time they do that, which kind of makes sense to me because if you lose possession, at least you have that defensive presence on the ice. But once the overtime actually gets going, nobody plays their position. Like it's run and gun. Eric Carlson's up in the play. Morgan Riley's up in the play. Duncan Keith is up in the play. And most of the times you have a forward back. So if you have a forward back, you might as well just play three forwards. That's, right. Yeah. Because you're 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 basically just playing man on man, just playing in the general vicinity of of your assignment, right? So why do you? Exactly. And what was funny was there was a point. I want to say it was in December. Um, the Leafs got a power play in overtime, and Babcock sent Kadri, Marner, Nylander, and Matthews over the boards, and they scored. Yeah, and it was fantastic. I was so excited. It, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's because they're all offensive-minded. The purpose of overtime, you've already got your pity point, is to score. Yes. 
okay, please tell me how Dan Girardi is more likely to score than a combination of Derek Stepan, Rick Nash, Pavel Bujnevich, Matt Zuccarello, Michael Grabner. Yeah, it's... No. Exactly. And it's... Overtime is so fast, and there's so many chances generated that ideally you want to have your most skilled finishers on the ice. And generally, if you're a good finisher, you're probably a forward. Right? I can think of Dustin Bufflin, who finishes the play really well. Yeah. But in terms of, I look at a team like Washington, let's say. Why wouldn't you want to have Backstrom, Ovechkin, and whoever else you want to put out there with them? Kuznetsov, Oshie, Burakovsky. Literally anybody. Now, they have a really deep decor with Shattenkirk and Orlov Orlov and Niskanen. So, you know what I'm saying, but give yourself the opportunity to score. Yeah, I'd I'd really, really like to see teams start to try that at least. For sure. Um, one more random idea I, I, I forgot about till just now um, that people were talking about a few weeks ago because a video came out of some uh, like AAA team doing it. On the power play, it, the swarm tactic where so the defenseman or, or the guy picks up the puck in the corner and curls kind of up the sidewall and mm-hmm. then all four offensive players go into the slot all at once in different areas and just basically just overwhelm uh, the defensive scheme. Yeah, that's dangerous. (laughs) Of course Um, it is. You know who you're talking to here? In the NHL, I don't think that would work because too many defensemen are way too good at moving the puck now. And the last thing you want is one pass beating four people, right? Yeah, but I mean... Because if you can plan against that, and if you plan against that well enough, you can generate two and three-on-ones on the PK, and as a, a team that's on the power play, I don't like giving up two-on-ones at even strength. It gives me anxiety. <laughs> yeah. So if I see two or three-on-ones on a power play, I'm going to snap. Yeah, but like to be clear, I don't mean run the entire power play around that. I mean, I mean like throw a wrench in it every once in a while and, and give it a shot. Yeah, yeah, every once in a while that could absolutely work because then it's more of a surprise element, right? It's the yeah, same that's... thing as using four forwards or a different setup on the power play. Yeah. Um that is a lot easier to stop than people think. Yeah. Or it's a lot easier to get by than people think. Um, because it takes a lot less, whereas to, like, it doesn't require any rotation. It just requires support, right? It requires support and an accurate pass. That's it. Yes. Right? So it's, you have to set it up differently. I saw that video of the AAA team. They're a little bit too close together for my liking. If you spread out a little bit. Yeah, I kind of thought so too, but. Um, that could work. Um, as long as your sticks are in the right place um, and your body is facing the right way and your feet are facing the right way to um, 
to kind of give the lane where you can predict the pa- where the pass will go and then you can pick it off. You you got to do it when someone like Marner has the puck too, like someone who's a very good passer because theoretically there's going to be at least one guy open a slot if you spread out enough, right? But Exactly. Yeah, you need a passer uh, like Marner. Yeah, so um, that could work once in a while, but it's not going to be as effective as, as some of the other methods that are used today. All right, just just spitballing here as always. Um, one last question. Hashtag, are the Leafs actually good? <laughs> Sorry, are hashtag the Leafs actually good? The Leafs are actually very good. I like it. Remember when you said to me in September, or you asked me how the Leafs would do this year, and I said, you watched, they're going to fight for the playoffs, and then people started screaming at me on Twitter? I don't recall, but I, I believe you. Um, yeah, I got torched by people on Twitter, even like my friends at home, and I said, just watch, just watch. They're going to be good. Um, and... I didn't think they'd be. I didn't think Marner would come up and do what he did. I knew he'd make the team. I didn't think he'd come up and put up sixty points. I had a pretty good feeling of what Nylander would do. I had a pretty good feeling about what Matthews would do, and I thought that that might be enough. I, but as these guys develop, especially next year, this team is going to be really good, really, really quickly, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's going to surprise a lot of teams. I agree, because I'd, I'd say they're already a top five, maybe top three offensive team. Um, they're just kind of a disaster defensively right now. But uh, if, they can, if they can even become average in that sense. I th- well, even look at the playoffs right now. Let's say the Leafs finish third in their division, right? Yeah. Does Ottawa scare you? No. Does Montreal scare you? No, Carey Price does, but. Okay, I was going to say, if Carey Price is Superman like he was last season, then yes, Montreal scares me. Yeah. Carey Price is just a regular, like, himself as he's been this year. They don't really scare me. Um, their back end isn't that good. They depend on scoring from one line. You're looking at three solid lines with the Leafs. And if Freddie Anderson holds up, I'm not saying they're going to make the conference finals, but I'm saying I wouldn't want to play them if I was Ottawa or Montreal. No, me neither. Um, and yeah, and that's that's the big difference between them. Like most uh, predictive models, like Micah Blake McCurdy's model and Money Puck, uh, the Leafs at like an 85 percent chance of making the playoffs, which is great. Mm-hmm. And but the the biggest thing is they got to stay and in second or third in their division. Like, if they fall back to the wild card spot and have to play Pittsburgh, Columbus, or Washington... No, that's good, end. Yeah, good night. But. Yeah. If they, they could win their division, I could see that happening. Um, because Montreal is a bit of a mess right now. Um, the Ottawa Blue Line is in a whole world of hurt. I think Carlson <laughs> and Mathot are out right now. Their top pairing tonight is is literally the worst second pairing in the league in Phaneuf and Cece. Yeah, and that's less than inspiring. Um, so run to bet against the Sens right now, but anyway. Yeah, exactly. And uh, 
I think that in a playoff series, um, I don't want to call out Sens fans, but the Leafs are going to play seven home games if they play the Sens. Because they're just, like, Leaf fans will overrun Canadian Tire Center. They just will. It happens every time. Right? Yeah. So I think you look at that, plus you look at the fact that they've got three scoring lines and Ottawa doesn't really have that. Um, and Carlson and Mathot can really only play, let's say, half hour a night. Yeah. Well, considering the Leafs' fourth line plays maybe 10 minutes a night, that's... 50 minutes where the other three lines are playing. And if Carlson only plays 30, that's an extra 20 minutes where, oh boy. Yeah. And they, like, even with Carlson and Mathot, they, they're, uh, they don't, uh, they don't do well in the shot share. And it's because they don't have any depth. Like, like, I really like Mark Stone. Um, I really like Mike Hoffman. Uh, I do. Yep. Turris is all right, but you know, uh, after that, it's it's not great. Like, and same with their blue line. Like, when Carlson's on the ice, like, you, hold on, you know, <laughs> if you're the opposition. But when, yeah. when he's not, I mean, their bottom two pairings are atrocious. And now they have three pairings like that with Carlson out after he blocked another shot. So yeah, I think um, it'll be interesting to see if Anderson and Condon can continue what they're doing, playing really well. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's great to see Craig Anderson. Yeah, he's um, gone through a lot this year. Yeah. And if anybody else gets the Masterton this year, other than maybe Brian Bickle, can, anybody who votes should immediately have their voting rights just revoked. Can Bickle win it without playing? If he plays one game, I think he can. Okay. Um, Those are two good candidates. Yeah, but other than that, I mean... It, it's not really a discussion this year. Yeah, I still think O'Reilly should have won it last year for crap. Oh my god, time. was that just <laughs> the most ridiculous nomination? Because <laughs> he got pissed drunk in his antique truck and crashed into Tim Hortons. Yeah, but he's changed. Okay, but that doesn't change the fact that he is a criminal. Uh, that's hilarious. Anyway, right. I'm going to let you go, okay, Rachel? Thanks a lot for coming on. Good talk. Uh, enlightening as always it was a great chat and i'm sure we will talk more hot takes in the near future all right reoccurring guest you heard it here first thanks a lot rachel no problem thanks dylan